Warning! Warning! Today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. What kind of a sick school is this? Things are afoot at the Circle K. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You got spunk. I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, righty. How you doing? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Stand up to my little friend. I love to celebrate from in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I got a crap on deck that can choke a donkey. Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Can I do that? I'll be back. A dynamite! Show me the money! Don't! Up your nose when you have a home. A what? I'm sailing! I'm sailing! You want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Here's looking at you, kid. We got no food. We got no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off. Go to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to join you, honey. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We're on a mission from God. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Then Is Now podcast. I am your host, Rigor. As regular listeners know, Then Is Now is a show in which we discuss pop culture that is disappearing from our zeitgeist and present it to today's audience, an effort to show people all the cool stuff they may have missed out on. The film, American Graffiti, from 1973, directed by George Lucas, of course, of Star Wars fame, is an important film in our culture and film history. This is a movie that needs to be seen. Joining me today also is a special guest who is not from America, but he's very enthusiastic about discussing American pop culture on this show. So go and watch American Graffiti if you haven't seen it, or show it to a younger person that you know, then come back and listen to our discussion of the film. Class is in session. I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Hey, you in my class? I am today. I think you should consider transferring to shop class. Woo -woo! Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shop class. Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good. Sign this. 
Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance oh. bell ring and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're going to have recess all the time. Woo! Go, play, and have fun now. The late 1940s and the 1950s are fondly remembered in American pop culture. While some people like to harp on the negative things that happened in those decades, it cannot be denied that we had just come off the victory of World War II and the nation was extremely prosperous. The end of the war also gave rise to a new concept, the teenager. Up until the 1940s, many children went to work around age 12, sometimes even younger. But because the country had become so prosperous, children were no longer needed to go to work at such an early age, and thus they had a lot of free time on their hands. The film, American Graffiti by director George Lucas, is a slice of life from the 1950s and early 60s, mostly drawn from his own experiences then. And while it's sometimes not pretty, it's still a wonderful coming-of-age tale and an important film as well. And when you watch this movie, just sit back and let the splendor of the late 50s and early 60s wash over you as you enjoy an amazing slice of life. Joining me today to discuss this picture is someone new to the show. He's 19 years old and very enthusiastic about discussing American pop culture. His name is Lucas, and he's from Denmark. Welcome to the show, Lucas. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I'm so glad you decided to join the show as a regular guest co-host. How did you decide that getting into podcasting was something that you wanted to do? Well, um, this, like this podcast specifically is, is like, I'm very into, uh, movies and, and, and older things like, um, for example, you sent me a list of, of different movies to watch, and I haven't watched uh, any of them, actually, other than American Graffiti, of course. But most of them actually do sound very intriguing. Uh, Rebel Without a Cause, I, of course, know uh, James Dean. So, yeah, yeah. like, I, just just the whole concept of the, this podcast really, like, intrigues me and, and kind of speaks to me. And I must say, I really enjoyed the movie, so. Excellent, excellent. So let's jump into the film American Graffiti from 1973. Where were you in 62? Grab that special one and jump into your candy-colored custom or your screaming machine, cruise downtown, and catch American Graffiti. American Graffiti. It's a movie. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Go back in time. Where were you in 62? Is that you in that beautiful car? Jeez, what a waste of machinery. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. What What did you say? Someone wants me. Someone roaming the streets wants me. And I bet you're smart enough to get us some brew. A ballpoint pen, a pint of old Harper. Okay, you got an ID for the liquor? Not I left it in the car. You'll have to get it before. Oh, well, I, I also, I forgot the car. We're finally getting out of this turkey town. You just can't stay 17 forever. If I had a boyfriend, he'd pound you. What's 
On their last evening of summer vacation in 1962, high school graduates and friends Kurt Henderson and Steve Bolander meet two other friends, John Milner, the drag racing king, and Terry the Toad Fields in the parking lot of Mel's Drive-In in Modesto, California. Kurt and Steve are to travel back east the following morning to start college. Kurt has second thoughts about leaving Modesto. Steve gives Terry his car to care for until he returns. Laurie, Steve's girlfriend and Kurt's sister, arrives. Steve suggests to Laurie that they see other people while he's away to quote-unquote strengthen their relationship. Though not openly upset, she is, affecting their interactions throughout the night. Kurt, Steve, and Laurie attend the back-to-high school sock hop. En route, Kurt sees a beautiful blonde woman driving a white Ford Thunderbird. She mouths the words, I love you, before turning. Kurt becomes desperate to find her. One of his friends tells him the blonde is the wife of a local jeweler, but Kurt does not believe it. After leaving the hop, Kurt is coerced by a group of greasers called the Pharaohs into hooking a chain to a police car and ripping out its back axle. The Pharaoh tells Kurt that the blonde is a prostitute, which he does not believe. Kurt drives to the radio station to ask the disc jockey Wolfman Jack to read a message for her on the air. Kurt encounters an employee who tells him the Wolfman does not work there and that the shows are pre-taped for replay. The employee accepts the message and promises to try to have the Wolfman air it. As he's leaving, Kurt sees the employee talking into the microphone and hearing the voice he realizes it is the Wolfman, who reads the message asking the blonde to meet Kurt or call him on the payphone at Mel's. Kurt is awakened by the phone the next morning. The blonde does not reveal her identity, but tells Kurt maybe they'll meet that night. Kurt replies that he probably will not because he's leaving town. Terry and John cruise the strip. Terry picks up flirtatious and rebellious Debbie. John inadvertently picks up Carol, an annoying, precocious 12-year-old who manipulates him into driving her around all night. Bob Falfa is searching out John to challenge him to a race. Steve and Laurie continue to argue and make up through the evening. They finally split as the storylines intertwine. Bob Falfa picks up Laurie. Bob finds John and goads him into racing. Many follow them to Paradise Road to watch. As John takes the lead, Bob's tires blow out, causing him to lose control. His car swerves into a ditch, rolls over, and catches fire. Steve and John leap out of their cars and rush to the wreck, while Bob and Laurie crawl out and stagger away just before it explodes. Laurie grips Steve tightly and begs him not to leave her. He assures her that he'll stay. At the airfield, Kurt says goodbye to his parents, Laurie, Steve, John, and Terry. As the plane takes off, Kurt gazes out the window and sees the white Thunderbird driving in parallel to his plane. An on-screen epilogue reveals that John was killed by a drunk driver in 1964. Terry was reported missing in action near Anlock in 1965. Steve is an insurance agent in Modesto, and Kurt is a writer in Canada. 
So, Lucas, uh, I think you said this before. This was your first time watching American Graffiti? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's actually a great movie, and I end up, ended up reading a whole like interview with uh, George Lucas about it. And and I, I found this like quote from him. I don't remember from where, but it, it he said that he started out as Terry, and then went on to be John Milner, and and then ended up being Kurt, like the intellectual who goes to college, and and they're all composite characters of him and his friends. Yes, yes, I heard that as well. And I, I, I found it uh, very, very interesting that it actually took place not like long before it was actually recorded or, uh, yeah, the recorded the, the movie. If you were to like if you were to record the same time span today, it would be in 2009, really. So that's pretty wild that, that it's so long ago and, and yet it feels so relevant Yes, it definitely does. You know, this movie came at an interesting time, too, because it just takes place just before a lot of changes in the world. where We had a lot of chaos and, and Vietnam and all kinds of crazy stuff going on. So, And that's where it takes place. And when it came out, we were in the middle of all that chaos. So it's sort of it was hugely nostalgic for people. Uh, back in 1973 and it, yeah. it reminded them of a simpler you know maybe even more innocent time w from their youth yeah yeah especially since like the whole world uh, came off of this this high from winning uh, the the second world war and then afterwards going straight into another war it must be like a, a, a an insane roller coaster to to like go through Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I saw I remember seeing this movie as a kid and, you know, I always remembered that it was a fun and I, I knew it was an important film, but I, I don't think I ever really understood it. But, you know, now watching it again as an adult, it was so much fun just letting the, the beautiful imagery and the incredible music just wash over me. And I really felt like I was back in that time period and enjoying this coming of age tale, you know, and it, it, the whole movie takes place in the course of just one night, which is really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I kind of um, I, I watched it with my dad actually, and and it, of course he he knew of the movie. Of course, it, like back when George Lucas was this uh, wunderkind, like yeah. uh, a a very young and very very good director and producer, but like very successful at a very young age. And and we were watching it, and I, I made a reference to Pulp Fiction that it's like it's all of these stories intertwined. Of course, it's it's not the same movie and it's not the same concept at all. But just the the whole premise of uh, four different stories taking taking place in the same time and the same area is is it reminded me a lot of um, Pulp Fiction. I agree. I agree with that. And it's it's interesting too because I kind of felt that um, and we'll get into the the cast and stuff in a little bit here, but um, I kind of felt that. Richard Dreyfuss's character, Kurt, was sort of like, at least to me in watching this, he was kind of the center of the movie, even though, like you said, they were all a bunch of, you know, uh, different stories going on at the same time. I felt like it, ultimately it was his story because he's the one that makes the most radical change. Yeah, uh, I, I completely agree. Uh, that's where all the main story progress really happens. It's around Kurt. Right, right. So let's talk a little bit about George Lucas here. Of course, everybody knows him from Star Wars fame. I, I did a little research. I, was, I actually never really looked into his background, but he grew up on a, a walnut ranch in Modesto, which is where the, um, 
the movie takes place. Mm -hmm. And he was really interested in drag racing, and he wanted to become a race car driver, but I guess he was in some kind of a terrible accident, and that changed everything, and he decided not to be a race car driver anymore, which is good for us, because then he went to film school and became friends with Francis Ford Coppola, and the two went on to obviously become wildly successful filmmakers. And now this movie won, it won a Golden Globe Award, and it was nominated for five Academy Awards, and on the strength of that was what was able to make to let him make Star Wars. And then, of course, from there, he became friends with Steven Spielberg, and they created the Indiana Jones films, and um, he went on to expand Star Wars and, and do quite a few other movies. You know, some, some were, weren't hits, but some were really great. Yeah, it's a, it's a mixed bowl of both good and not-so-good movies. I wouldn't call them bad in the same sense as many other movies, but he is really, really talented with... Uh, making movies. And also, um, I find it funny that, that you were to mention uh, Indiana Jones because uh, American Graffiti was kind of like a very big breakout role for Harrison Ford playing Bob Falfa. Yep, yep. And I, I think, though, Harrison Ford kind of, after this movie, he wasn't really getting any jobs, so he, he went back to being a carpenter. And it wasn't until Star Wars that really, like, propelled him into the stratosphere. Yeah, I actually didn't know that, but but yeah, I um, I, I actually thought about like the whole um, him being in uh, three different um, movies or two like um, a series of movies and one really really good movie, American Graffiti, of course, and and then there's the series of movies, Star Wars and Indiana Jones, where he it's all George Lucas, which which I found a little amusing that he was like the main provider of jobs for him, right. <laughs> I mean, hey, Harrison Ford was in six of the most successful films of all time, you know, the three Star Wars movies and the three uh, Indiana Jones movies. Yeah, yeah. So, and of course, we've got, you know, starting off our, with our cast first, we've got Richard Dreyfus who played Kurt Henderson. You know, like I said, I, I liked his story. I think we, we kind of agree. He was sort of the um, the integral part of the whole story. Kind of, He's the one who kind of connects all the other stories together. And... You know, he's he's another actor that we could just talk a whole show about. I mean, he's had such great movies like Close Encounters, The Goodbye Girl, Mr. Holland's Opus, What About Bob? But after American Graffiti, it really was the movie Jaws that put him on the map. Have you seen Jaws, Lucas? Uh, yeah, the movie Jaws. Yeah, you spoke about that on another podca podcast. I did. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, we did that in a previous episode. It it made me kind of jealous. The whole um, Halloween podcast thing with where you talked about uh, both um, the new and the old Halloween movies. Yep. Which I'm a huge horror fan, so that kind of made me made me a little angry that I I actually didn't know about your show earlier. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. Then, of course, we've got uh, Ron Howard, who played Steve, and um, he was, you know, most people, uh, do you do you know who Ron Howard is? Did you see, have you seen him before? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. He was in, a, um, the ABC Network in America made a pilot for a TV show called Happy Days, and they aired it originally on another show called Love American Style, which was a different story every week. And, of course, he played the character of Richie Cunningham, and ABC didn't really care for the, um, for that so they weren't going to turn it into a series of George Lucas liked him in it so he basically cast Howard and I guess Howard Ron Howard really blew everybody away at the audition and so he cast him as the part of Steve and because of that ABC turned around and decided to launch Happy Days into a full TV show that ended up lasting for 10 years for those who don't know 
Ron Howard went on to become a hugely successful director himself. He directed such classic films as Splash, Parenthood, Apollo 13, and A Beautiful Mind, among many, many others. And he's still he's still working to this day, producing and directing. And uh, I think he's produced a lot more TV shows lately, just because of the COVID. I I, I like um, staying on on Steve as a character. I really like the whole um, dynamic between him and Kurt. That they kind of like switched roles in the end. That Kurt actually decided to leave and 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 he decided to stay with Laurie. Right, right, exactly. And um, yeah, because we... as Kurt said, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Oh, it's just that uh, Kurt like mentioned that that Steve had spent what was it eight weeks trying to convince him to to leave with him, and in the end, it was the other way around that Kurt tried to get him to leave. Yeah, and that was one of the major themes of this movie was change. It's everybody's life was changing. They they were uh, some of them were afraid of change. I think Kurt was the one who was the most afraid of change, you know. And Steve was ready to dive headlong into it. Yeah, the, the, uh, actually, uh, I may have overanalyzed it, but just the whole scene of him in the the you know the whole crossroad where they're filming on him trying to like cross the road, but he goes back, kind of like reflects his whole opinion on maybe I should stay, maybe I should go, where he's like. They only film where he came from, never where he goes. That's true. I never, I didn't notice that. <laughs> That's awesome. Like he, he, he takes a step like towards the other, like out of out of frame. Right. But then he decides to go back across the street from which he came, and I, I found that kind of kind of interesting. That I don't know if it was intentional or not, but it kind of shows that you know he he was very hesitant to leave and and actually wanted to stay. But in the end, he decided to leave, even though I don't want to spoil anything. But even though that he um, like like there's a lot of change with him, he has a hard time letting go. And and in the end, it is him, you know, changing. Well, yeah, absolutely. And don't worry about spoiling. I, I put a I put a spoiler alert before every episode and people really should watch these movies before we talk about them, especially something that's what, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> especially since it's like a lot of people consider uh, American Graffiti like George Lucas's true masterpiece. Right. Yeah. But I, yeah, I uh, if I don't have to worry about spoilers, you know, he, he gets he kind of gets the girl, but he decides to leave anyways. Right. And it's interesting to watch his dynamic or his arc through the film because, you know, he goes in, there's a shot of him in the school and he goes to his old locker and the school has already changed yeah, the yeah, locks. I, I noted that down. Yeah. Yeah. And and, he, yeah. He gets like frustrated that, that I actually changed the locks. Yeah. Right. And that just signifies that, you know, the door to his past is closed and he can't go back. He can only go forward. Yeah. It, like after graduating and, and getting the whole scholarship, he, he like... That's the point of no return for him. He can't just hand the money back and let them down. You know, he has a future somewhere else. Right. And I think also one of the main things that helped change him was when he was, he kind of was reluctantly hanging out with that gang, the Pharaohs. And he didn't want to be with them, but it was kind of thrilling, the stuff they were doing. Like they were going to steal, they stole the money from the pinball machine and they put the hook on the back of the police car and ripped the whole bottom out, which was a great scene. (laughs) Yeah, they ripped the whole back axle out. That yeah. was a really, 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 <laughs> really good scene. I, I gotta, I gotta laugh at that. Yeah, me too. And it was just, but I think in his mind, I think watching these guys and what they were doing and the trouble they were getting, getting into, it was only going to get worse from there. If he stayed with them, he would have probably ended up in jail. And I think that was a huge factor in his decision to leave. 
yeah, I, I can see that, especially now that I think about the whole, they, they quoted like a quote from one of the pharaohs, I think like the, the main guy, the, the blonde, he says, you know what, everybody wants to be in this town, a pharaoh. And, and he kind of nods, you know, going along with it. And I think he kind of realized that, you know, this isn't like a good environment to be in. I, I probably should go. Exactly. Exactly. So let's just jump back into the cast here for a little bit more. I wanted to talk about, um, we had Paul, Paul Lamatt who played John Milner. And I kind of forgot he was in this. I remember he was in a, a Charles Band horror movie called Puppet Master. I don't know if you've ever seen those series of films, but he was in the first one. And I, I never really cared for him in that. And I kind of forgot about him as an actor, but he's apparently done a lot of movies and TV shows. He was in Strange Invaders, Wishmaster, and on television, he was in a couple of miniseries, um, the Lonesome Dove miniseries and then the sequel, Lonesome Dove, The Outlaw Years. So he's he's been around for quite a while. Um, he just hasn't been in any other real high-profile stuff since American Graffiti. That's kind of sad because he's a, he's actually a really, like his character is re- really, it's actually really deep. Like it's very surface level when you look at it. Like he's a, drives a hot rod, a, a deuce coupe. And, you know, he's, he's pretty basic, you know, he's the tough guy and, and all that, but he's pretty deep when, when, you know, he's with Carol, you, you realize that there's more to him. He's, he's a genuinely good guy. He's not so tough on the inside. Right, right. And it, it, in the circumstances where everybody's facing change, He's the only one who's not changing. He's kind of stuck there. He'll always be the king of the drag races in that town, you know? Yeah. Actually, when now, now that you, you're saying that he'll always be the king of drag racing, he, like, he was convinced that Bob Falfa had him in the, in the, like, the, the last race between him and, and, and Bob Falfa, of course. But, like, uh, Terry... Um, like convinces him that like you're always going to be the king and nobody's going to beat you you're you're the fastest guy in town or in the whole valley and and you know it's it's kind of funny that that terry is is really encouraging him to stay the same yeah and it's funny that you said that now because you just made me think how when john was saying that he thought bob falfa beat him I almost wonder if that was maybe his out. That was his way of kind of finally saying, okay, I'm no longer the king. I'm no longer trapped here. But then Terry kind of brings him back to reality and and basically, like you just said, convinces him to stay the way he is. And so he ends up becoming even more trapped than he was before, you know? Yeah, that's a good point, actually. I, I didn't I didn't think about that. But but yeah, that's probably true that, you know, he convinces himself that that like everybody's moving on. I can move on too, and, you know, I, I don't have to be this persona that I, I, I made for myself. And and all of a sudden there's like one of his good friends who drag him back into it. Like not I don't think it was intentional of like the character Terry to like drag him back into it. I don't think he as like as a character realized it, but Right. That's basically what happened. He, he, he encouraged him to stay the same and not change. Exactly, exactly. And Terry, um, Terry the Toad was played by Charles Martin Smith. And he's been in a lot of movies and TV shows as well, including Never Cry Wolf. But one of the movies I remember him being really good in was The Untouchables with Kevin Costner and Sean Connery. Have you ever seen that one? Yeah, I think I have. Maybe when I was, I was younger. Uh, my, my parents really loved uh, Kevin Costner. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, we'll have to check that movie out in a future episode. But he was really good here. I think his character his character kind of changed without him even realizing it. Like he really was he was picked on. They would pull his pants down in front of people and then he got the car and he got the girl that she, you know, um uh was it Debbie, I think. She just genuinely liked him 
and he would st- he started off telling her all these lies and then as she realized that uh, what he was saying wasn't true she didn't care she still liked him and i think that kind of gave him some confidence you know yeah definitely uh, and you know like continuing on that note i i i just um i was looking through my notes here and there like i i I realize there's like a um, a quar- there a quartet of of characters. Of course, there's like uh, Laurie and Steve, and then there's Terry, and I th- as you said, Debbie, and then there's uh, John and Carol, and then there's Kurt, like kind of being alone, and right. and it's in they have like their own different themes. There's like love, which is is Kurt. He's chasing chasing this girl, and then there's the comedy, which is clearly Terry the Toad, or as he tried to convince. Uh, Debbie, he was called Terry the Tiger, right? <laughs> uh, and he he's kind of like the the com- comedic note in the movie, and then there's like the action part with it, which is John, and then of course there's the drama between uh, Steve and Laurie, right? And, and Laurie, of course, was played by Cindy Williams, and she went on to fame as playing Shirley Feeney in the Happy Days spinoff Laverne and Shirley with Penny Marshall. That show went on for eight seasons, and for this movie, she got a, a BAFTA award, which is the British Academy of Film and Television Arts. Uh, she Actually, she got a nomination from BAFTA, and um, also she, uh, I'm sorry, she got the nomination for Best Supporting Actress, uh, but that led, led to Francis Ford Coppola casting her in the movie called The Conversation in 1974 with Gene Hackman, and then she went on to do Laverne and Shirley for eight seasons, she was married to a guy named Bill Hudson, who was a member of the famous musical trio, the Hudson Brothers. And older listeners of the show might remember their Saturday morning TV show, as I do, which was called the Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle Show. I think she even guest starred on a couple of episodes of that, too. So she she was good here. I thought she underplayed it very well. You know, you could read her remote emotions on her face. She didn't have to say, you know, I'm upset about this. You just knew she was upset about something, you know? Yeah, of course. Uh, she's a, she like she is genuinely a really really good actor, especially in in American Graffiti. I really liked her role, and like there was a lot of like she made some like a lot of decisions, and I I think she was the most like full fledged character in in the sense that like she was very meticulous in her decisions. Uh, for example, there's the scene where she like just gets out of her car and and uh, hops in uh, Bob Falfa's. Right. And and you know they had just had this this whole argument hit her and and Steve and all of a sudden she's like I'm gonna make him jealous. I'm gonna make him stay. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I I think too it was um I I almost wonder if uh, Steve when he tells her I think we should see other people when when I'm away I would feel like he was trying to convince himself of go like why he should go away you know if he if he broke the tie with her he wouldn't feel so bad leaving her behind yeah like at a at a surface level you would think like you know he was uh what was it like um uh, class rep um he was like a very popular guy like also with the girls like as soon as he's alone you know girls try and jump on him right <laughs> uh, but it's true like it sounds weird but it's it's really true that in, in like the split second that that uh laurie's gone like uh what's her name uh, buddha uh, the, the 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 waitress oh yeah she, like, yeah, she asks yeah she wants to like like hang out with him and and then he like convinces himself that like no i still love laurie but yeah as as you said like if you look deeper, uh, I think that's what you meant anyways. If you look deeper and like analyze what he's saying, it's kind right. of like, yeah, if you cut all the ties, you don't have a reason to stay. Right, exactly. 
And I think when he realized she was in danger and she literally could have died in that car explosion, that kind of cemented how he felt for her and he made the decision to stay. Yeah, and I think there's a bit of symbolism there with the whole uh, Bob Falfa's car having the, the skull. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think of that. It's like, in the end, they could have actually, they could, they could have died. Right. And it's funny, every time I hear the name Bob Falfa, I think it, Boba Fett. I wonder if, if Lucas kind of came up with that based on that name, you know? Could have been. You you know, he's uh, he's pretty creative with the names. You know, there's the Wookiees and the Ewoks, and it's just the name reversed. Right, right. Hey, cats and kittens, do you remember the 50s jukeboxes, hot rods, malt shops, and sock hops? No, not really. Oh, well, do you remember that TV show Happy Days? You know, Fonzie and Richie and all like that? A, sit on it, etc.? Kind of. Then join us for These Days Are Ours, a Happy Days podcast where we watch every episode and give you the lowdown on what it all means. Find us at thesedaysareours.libsyn.com and follow us on Twitter at Fonzie Podcast. Be there or be square. You're sure you don't remember Sock Hops? Sorry, no. Okay, then. spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here are your hosts, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher or visit MonsterKidRadio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Bryce, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Kid Radio. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. 
There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. We come from the retro future. We want you to be nostalgic for what's to come. A new channel and distribution network for smart people with bad taste featuring content from Church of the Subgenius, Creature Features, Cinema, Insomnia, Sleazy P. Martini and Guar, Troma, Corey Maccabee, Horror, Sci-Fi, Saturday Morning Cartoons, Midnight Movies, and Assorted Trash We Love. Add our channel OSI 74 to your Roku player or visit OSI74.com. All systems go. Now, um, the disc jockey was played by a real-life disc jockey named Wolfman Jack. Had you ever heard of him before? No, but I, uh, I, when I looked up the cast, I, I realized that it was like a, it was a play on, a play on his name. Right. But, he, yeah, he was a real guy. He had that real voice. He'd be like, yeah, this is Wolfman Jack, and today we're going to play the top 40 hits, you know. And um, he was just ama- yeah. an amazing DJ in America, and, and nobody, there's been nobody like him ever since. Now that we were talking about um, uh, about the Wolfman, uh, there's this, um, this scene where uh, Carol is listening to him on the radio with with uh, Milner, and she says um, that uh, her mom won't let her listen to it because quote unquote he's a Negro. Right. <laughs> and and in today in today's society, 2021, you're we're looking at that. Like I was. Like I'm not easily offended, but I was. I, I just thought like that wouldn't fly today if somebody like said that. You can't make a movie and and have a character say that. But back in in, uh, of course, it, it takes place in '62, uh, and and back then there was a lot of racism still. Right. So of course it makes sense that 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 whole um, like sentence. It kind of makes sense in in that way because you know there was a lot of racism back then. Not saying that there still isn't. Or right, isn't anymore. I, I, I mean, but you know, it was more prominent back then. Right, exactly, and that's what viewers have to understand too when they're watching a movie like this. Is you have to first of all remember when the film was made, so you have to take things in the context of when the context of when they were made. But this film was also made about something that happened ten years prior, or you know, a, a fictional thing that happened ten years prior, and it so it reflected what people really said in that time. And it's like, it, it's sad sometimes, you know, some of these things that are negative that are said in these old movies and stuff, but it's like, 
it's a product of its time. We just have to understand that and go with it and, and just accept that we've evolved as a society and we don't think that way anymore, or at least we try not to. Yeah, like in today's society, or I could imagine you as a parent, you would never tell your children they couldn't listen to something or watch something just because there was a black person in it. So, right, exactly. You know, we have evolved. We, 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 we try to better ourselves. Exactly, exactly. So Wolfman Jack was cool. He's another one I want to do a show on at some point because... He generally played himself when he was in movies. He wasn't in a lot of movies, but he would he would be himself, except for one, a horror movie that I, I used to love as a kid. It was called Motel Hell, and he played a character named Reverend Billy in that movie, which I thought was hilarious. Um, and he, he kind of started out with a pirate radio station. They actually dug a ditch over the Mexican border and ran a cable over there and broadcast from a tower, like, I don't know, like a mile into, the, into Mexico, so the the American uh, FCC couldn't touch him, and he broadcast his signal and went like all the way up to Canada and I think down towards South America, and there were people completely outside of America that were hearing him as well, and that's how he sort of became this international radio star. You know, that's that sounds really really retro to do something like that yeah. and have their own pirate radio <laughs> station. You know, that's it's a you know back in the day it was very that's a very uh, rebellious thing to do. So you know it was like it was a different time where you could do that. You, you couldn't do that today. Yeah, exactly. Then we've got a couple of other ones. Uh, Bo Hopkins played Joe. He was he was good. He was in, um, he was the leader of the Pharaohs, the tall blonde guy. And he was in a bunch of movies like The Killer Elite and Midnight Express, The Getaway and The Wild Bunch. And then there's quite a few other actors in this film. We're not going to go into detail about them, but I did want to mention that the blonde and the T-Bird was played by Suzanne Somers. And she, of course, became famous on the American sitcom uh, she played the character of Chrissy on Three's Company. And then, of course, we mentioned Harrison Ford, who, again, you could talk for hours just about this guy. And, you know, aside from Star Wars and, and Indiana Jones, he was in such classic movies as The Patriot Games, The Fugitive, Witness, Presumed Innocence. And one of my favorites of his movies is Air Force One. Because there's nothing more satisfying than watching Harrison Ford beat the living crap out of someone with his bare hands. <laughs> He's a very manly man. You like you got to give credit where credit is due. Yeah. Him as Indiana Jones is a very manly man. Like yeah. you know when you think James Bond, but more you know more action than than in like throughout the entire movie, not just a few few scenes but most of his movies where like every scene he's in there's a you know there's banter there's there's a bit of you know talking talking dirty yeah being a man <laughs> there's uh this quote uh where uh <laughs> where toad says that uh nobody can beat milner and he cuts him off and he says i nobody dork right <laughs> You know, like it, it's like when I think Harrison Ford, it, that like those sorts of things is like are are like um, you know it, it's something I can just picture him him doing in a movie or saying in a movie. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And he's he was good, you know. And we really didn't get much of his character except for the fact that he wanted to drag race what's his name John quite a bit, and then finally gets the opportunity, yeah, and sadly. then he fails. <laughs> Yeah, like he, I, I found his uh, character really interesting. Actually, that like he's a you know he's this bad guy, the the evil dude, which he normally really doesn't play, and and yet it works so well for him. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and I thought it was interesting. Like, so the whole setup of this, what the what the kids are doing in this movie is called cruising. 
And apparently they don't really do that anymore, but it was big back in the, the 50s and 60s. And it was basically whether you were girls or boys, you would drive around and you would try. You, you know how like you've got um, in the animal world, you've got the peacock and the male peacock has these beautiful feathers and that's to attract the female peacock. Well, and that's my analogy. The same way, that's what these kids are doing here with their amazing cars. It's all about the car. Who's got the cool car? Because then you'll get a girl who wants to drive in the cool car with you, you know? And that's what kids would do. They would just drive around and pick each other up, whether it was boys in a car or girls in a car. And we saw we saw them both on the street talking to each other, you know, in, in several scenes. Yeah. Um, a scene that kind of springs to mind is where um, they're at that, uh, what, what's it, the, the school dance thing? And, and oh, Kurt cop, yeah. goes with what? Yeah. Where Kurt goes with his, what's it, the, like ex-girlfriend or, or something. And uh, he's in their car. And on the other hand, there's Toad who picks up um, that uh, that girl. Debbie. What's her yep. name? Debbie. 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 That's right. And, and you know, it, it kind of like, it's not it shows that it's not just guys who can who can pick up people it's also the girls right exactly and like on that note uh, there's toad where he uh, it, it's another funny scene again with uh, Harrison Ford Bob Falfa where uh, he he sits there and it's a it's a good looking car and and you know he revs his engine looking smugly at uh, Bob Falfa and he looks like slowly looks across uh, from the girl who sits beside him, which is not the same girl like 10 minutes later. Right. <laughs> he, he looks over at Toad and revs his engine and just blows him out of the water. Right. Is that the scene where Toad even accidentally backs up into the guy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> where they, like he, he, he drives at the, wrong, uh, at the wrong signal, and then he like backs up, and then Bob Falfa <laughs> just speeds off. Right. <laughs> He's a he plays a really good role, uh, I think. Uh, Toad is a is a really great character. Oh, absolutely, I agree. You know, and it's funny because this whole cruising thing can basically be considered a, a mating ritual, if you will. You know, mm-hmm. and it was just kind of funny. I love the scene where uh, Toad and Debbie park the car, and then they they decide to get out and, and they take a blanket with them. And I'm watching it going, why did he leave the car door open? And I watched it with the subtitles, so when um, Wolfman Jack was on the radio, you could really understand what he was saying. And his Wolfman Jack's voice is going on and on and on, and then they go down and have fun, you know, on the blanket or whatever. And then he realizes that the radio is not playing anymore. And then it occurs to him, oh, crap, the car might have been stolen. And, of course, they run back, and the car's gone. And that scene, <laughs> I was just, like, just totally in his position. What would I have done? I would have just freaked out, you know? Yeah, like I, I couldn't imagine just you know leaving thinking you're gonna get your rocks off and and, and then yeah. all of a sudden your car is just stolen. <laughs> and it's one thing, you know. Well, first of all, he was stupid for leaving the keys in the car, but it, it's one thing if your car gets stolen. I mean, it's horrible. It's a terrible thing. Should never happen to anyone. But it's another thing if somebody entrusts their car to you to take care of while they're away, and it gets stolen. I think that like compounded his worry and his anxiety, you know. Yeah, definitely. Like that's a terrible position to be in. Not only is a car stolen, but it's also one of your good friends' car. Right. <laughs> I, I wouldn't know what to do. Like I think my mind would be racing a million miles an hour thinking, what the hell am I gonna do? Oh yeah, exactly. I think it was sheer luck that he happens to find it in that parking lot later on. I wouldn't call it luck. He got he got the crap beaten out of him. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good scene. But, but then, then John, again, John Mil- Yep, go uh, ahead. Yeah, exactly. 
No, no, you continue. You continue. Well, I was going to say John steps in and saves him and beats the crap out of the other guys, which I thought was a great scene. It was, it showed, you know, like you said, that John had a lot of layers to his character, and at his core, he really cared about his friends, and he even cared about the twelve-year-old the girl there. You know. Yeah, like there's a fun scene actually where he's like. I can't take it anymore. And he's like pretending to be into to Carol just to get her address so we can drop her off so she can go to sleep. Right. <laughs> that was really nice. <laughs> I just think it's funny that like, again, that wouldn't fly today doing something like that. Yeah, ex- absolutely. And it's funny because by the same token, there's that scene where Steve and Laurie are in the car and he's kind of almost forcing himself on her. And I thought that was very uncomfortable. And he's like, oh, I want something to remember you by when I'm away. And that kind of... Paint- it's very manipulative. Yeah, and I, I felt like he was a jerk, and I was getting very worried. I'm like, what, what kind of a scene are we going to see here? Is he going to rape her? And thankfully, that didn't happen. And, um, but it, it just it made me very uncomfortable, I have to say. Yeah, that was a really awkward scene to like, sit through that he's like, I want someone to remember you by, and she's just laying there. And, right. of course, it was intentional. She was like, if you want it so bad, then just go ahead. Right. And it, like, he doesn't want to do it course but then like again like an argument flares up and he gets kicked out of the car and she leaves him she just drives off yeah yeah she dumps him out that was so good but it kind of shows that like he he is like he is genuinely a nice guy like uh, steve is is he is a a, like like a really really nice guy and and you know they make up and he stays and they still love each other but you know there's also this this part that's like he, he is being genuinely manipulative to like try and like uh, have sex with her and just just because he wants something quote unquote to remember her by right and and she's compl- like it, it, it's completely fair that she doesn't want to because you know it's it's your right to say no but it, it just shows that she's actually not just some some girl you can push around she's a like she's actually like a tough person she knows what she wants and she doesn't take crap. Yeah, absolutely. You could tell that she's definitely willing to put up with a certain amount of crap, but then she's got her limits. And after a certain point, she's like, you know what? Forget it. And that's when she jumps into the car with Bob Falfa there, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, which I thought was kind of weird, too. But that was one thing I I saw. I can't remember if it was on the uh, director, because I watched um, half the movie with director's commentary the second time around. And um, I think, yeah, I think it was with George Lucas's commentary. He mentions that, you know, nowadays... We meet people online. We, you know, people try to date. They meet dates online and stuff. And you know, the the Facebook and the social media is our way of meeting people that we've never, we've never met before. Like just talking to, not even necessarily dating, but just you make friends online that you may not necessarily would have made in real life. But back then, this was how they made friends. They just literally went around drove around, picked up people, talked to people. People, Most people weren't afraid to talk to other people. And so that was that scene where um, she's driving alone and Bob Falfa comes up next to her and she kind of motions to the sidewalk that she's going to pull over. And she literally just pulls over and jumps into his car. And I don't think they had ever met before. No, they ha- hadn't actually. And, and yeah, it, it's true that... You know, in, in today's society, it's kind of like the same thing. I wouldn't necessarily call uh, our, like the society we have today more dangerous, but it's just we're more susceptible to like, you know, seeing the danger with all, you know, being on, on social media. Anybody can contact you in, in principle. But back in the day, you know, driving around, cruising and meeting people, it's it's the exact same thing, but in person. Yeah. 
Exactly, exactly. One thing I wanted to jump over to um, that we had been talking about was the 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 um, the subplot of Kurt trying to find the blonde in the T bird, which I kind of felt like that was that was an excuse for him to not leave town because he had this goal of finding this girl, and so that kind of kept him occupied. Would you agree? Yeah, um, yeah, I, I think I would because. You know, he sees her and then just like he jumps the gun and it's like, we got to find her. Right. And I think that's because, you know, he's sitting in the car with Stephen Lorien. And I think, you know, you know, maybe he wants a relationship with her. I don't know. But as you said, it may be like a um, sort of way of uh, subconsciously, you know, getting yourself a reason to actually stay. Yeah, exactly. And he just couldn't he couldn't find that. He never found a reason. He found more reasons to leave than to stay. So I think ultimately that's where he made the change. Yeah. And uh, the, you know, that's a good segue into uh, what I was actually going to say. And he was talking to uh, Mr. Wolf, um, the the teacher professor or whatever. And, and he says that like he went um, across state borders and, and studied and, and then he came back and then Kurt is like, you know, I, I'm not sure if I want to want to go actually. And and then he, he like Wolf, who's like, he looks pretty like sad. He like lights up and he's like, no, you got to go. You have your whole life ahead of you. You know, you can you can make a difference. And and the same thing goes with uh, the Wolfman where he's like, you know, I he he plays into the thing that like, I'm not the Wolfman. But but he says like the places he's been, the, the things he's seen. And, and, you know, I, I think that kind of like convinced Kurt to actually go that people are cheering him on and, you know, trying to trying to help him better himself, because it is a, a humongous uh, missed opportunity to, you know, get a scholarship, uh, especially in the U.S. where it's in, like really expensive and get a scholarship. It's like a free ticket out of town. You know, you can go, you can you can move somewhere, you can get a better life. Oh, absolutely, I agree, and it's it was it was fun to watch that um, that change in his in his character arc, you know, for to watch him go from feeling one way to completely changing his mind, and you see along the way everything that sort of factors into his his um, decision to change and and do go away, which I think you just laid out perfectly there. Yeah, it's a lot of like smaller conversation he conversations he has. It's very small changes in the way he he sees uh, like the reason to stay the reason to to go you know pros and cons and i think it's it's a very it's a um it's a thing that happens slowly it's not just one one thing that happens where he's like i gotta go i think it happens very very slowly yeah yeah and and you know speaking of, of the problems that these characters were facing i i found something on uh, the the society for u.s intellectual history wrote a little bit about this movie and what they said and i'll just read it here they said Uh, Together, John, Terry, Steve, and Kurt's fates underscore the lost innocence that is at the heart of American graffiti. Modesto, in 1962, is presented as a time when conflicts were local and manageable and challenges could be met and conquered. What to come would not be so simple. So it was this launching point of these characters from these simple problems, like Steve and Laurie's problem. They were able to work through it. You know, all these... It's kind of being kids, you know? Yeah, exactly. You know, when you're a kid, all these problems seem so huge. But when you look, take a, a, you know, wider perspective, and then you become an adult and you go out into the world, you realize that those problems were so small, comparatively, you know? Yeah, I think that's the reason why, you know, 
if I were to put myself in, in like a parent's shoes since, you know, I don't have kids, but if I had teenage kids and they were like really sad and depressed that like their, their girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever left or, or they broke up or something, you know, I think I would have a hard time, you know, not laughing at them. But that's, I think that's the reason why, you know, parents, the older generation has such an easy time managing these small problems with like their, their kids are facing because, you know, they, they aren't going through the same thing. They don't know any better. Right. Exactly. And you know what? Um, like, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say like, like me, for example, you know, the whole uh, going to college thing is like, you know, it's a hard time letting go. And, and now I kind of realize that like, you know, it's, it's not an issue at all. And, and then I listen to kids. Uh, like smaller kids, my own uh, nephews and nieces are, are like, oh, uh, maths are, are hard. And, and I just laugh because, you know, it's like if your problems are, are maths, you, <laughs> you know, you, <laughs> you're going to have a hard time being an adult. Uh, I'm going to tell you. Right. Exactly. <laughs> or, or, or be yeah, lucky. In the grand that scheme of things. Yeah, be lucky that that's your worst problem right now is math. It was <laughs> so when you have bills to worry about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and you always hear the kids, and not just nowadays, but always, that they, they want to be adults. And I think most adults can agree that, you know, it was such a simple time being a kid. You know, you just come home and, and, and relax most of the time and, and, and you have nothing to worry about. Your parents pay for your food and, and toys and roof over your head. You don't have to work, you know. Right. It, it, but all the pressure is on the parents and the kids just relax and they still think that they are having a tough time. Yeah. <laughs> now, what's interesting is, like we said, that we've sort of laid out the fact that this movie has so many layers to the story. But another layer that's not really a story, but yet it's integral to the story, are the cars or the hot rods that we see presented in the film. And, um, you know, what's really interesting that I found out doing my research is that you would think that because there are um, so many people out there that are customizers and hot rodders who really loved the cars in this film, it was kind of ironic because apparently after they shot the movie, they sold the cars in like a San Francisco newspaper ad or something. And only the one that Steve drove, the 58 Impala, got a buyer, and it only sold for a few hundred dollars. And I guess, oh. yeah, and the Yellow Deuce and the White T-Bird went unsold, despite the fact that they were priced less than $3,000. So I just thought that was interesting that even though that is... people loved it, they, <laughs> there was no interest. <laughs> like today, you look at like a pristine White Thunderbird like she was driving. Like they, I, I don't know any people who wouldn't be like, yeah, I, I want that. Oh, I, I, I want to buy that. <laughs> it's like I, the first, like it was my first time watching it. Of course, as I as I told you. Yeah. But but I, I looked at all these cars. And I'm like, you know, these are you know these are cars. Right. These are really really nice cars, and and they're priceless today. Most of them, you know, in, in that condition. Oh yeah. And and you just look at it, and, and it, I'm sitting here just kind of speechless that you're you're telling me that <laughs> none of them got sold. Yeah, because collector cars today, but of course you wouldn't have known that back then. Right, right. I, I don't know what ultimately happened to them. I mean, who knows? Maybe down the road somebody, a, a real collector, realized their value and picked them up. You know, hopefully. Yeah, I could see that happen. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, that would be a shame just to let them go to waste. Really. Oh, absolutely. 
And, you know, it was interesting, and just getting a little behind the scenes here on the film, uh, the studio didn't really like it after Lucas made it, and they wanted to release it as a TV movie. Um, they even went so far as to cut a couple of scenes out. I know two of them, the scenes that were cut were um, uh, the one where Terry is talking to the used car salesman. He's sitting in the giant chair out in front of the used car lot. And that scene was originally cut out of when it was first in the theater, as well as the scene where, um, I almost said Han Solo, where Harrison Ford's character is <laughs> in the car with um, Laurie and he's singing to her. I think it was like Strangers in the Night or something like that. And um, that scene was cut also. So I thought that was interesting. But I guess the, the test audiences, they, they loved the movie so much and they cheered through it and everything that... It convinced the studio heads to put it in the theater, and then of course it was it was a huge blockbuster. I I, I guess what was it had like a one point two seven million dollar budget, which today is almost eight million dollars, and um, it grossed more than fifty five million at the box office, which today would be like three hundred and seventeen million dollars. It it didn't do so well. It had like a modest success outside of the United States, but it became a cult film in France, which is interesting. A lot of interesting things from America become cult things in France. They re-released it in 1978, and th when they reissued it, they added in the scenes that were cut out. And there was no reason why they the studio wanted to cut those scenes out. The, George Lucas said it didn't make any sense. But they, they re-released it with those scenes added in, and they remastered the audio track in Dolby Stereo. So then it earned another $63 million at the box office, which would be about $247 million today. So uh, basically, uh, all told, at the end of its theatrical run, uh, this movie, American Graffiti, had one of the greatest cost-to-profit ratios of a motion picture ever. Yeah, I can hear that. That's incredible. That's a lot of money. Yeah. But I, I, I can definitely see it being being a huge blockbuster. It would have been a, a terrible shame if they didn't release it in the, in, the, in the theaters. Yes, exactly. And like I said before, I think this movie came at the right time. You know, Vietnam was just starting to wind down, but we had Watergate going on. We had all these, you know, scandals and, and just bad things. We were, you know, coming off all the assassinations from the 60s, whether it was Kennedy or Martin Luther King or a bunch of other people. And I think... This film came at the right time where even though, you know, the past is, is always looked at as, um, you know, being innocent and stuff, it, it just presented um, a nostalgic feel for people of, of that year, you know, and I think that's when they really needed it. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's a very innocent movie in a very, very bloody time, I would say. It's a very, it was a very, very critical time to release a movie that would get people, you know, to, 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 to stop focusing on all the bad things that had happened and is happening right and I, for me personally that's part of the reason why we watch movies is to escape reality and to enjoy a fantasy world where you know the problems of of our world don't necessarily exist yeah exactly and i i think i think that could be said with any hobby or or anything uh, digital be it video games tv series or, or or movies you know or as i said hobbies if you play golf or soccer or football or whatever right it's 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 a way to you know like get an escape get an out and, and, you know, just stop focusing on all the, the the everyday problems. Yeah, exactly. And what's interesting, too, is that a lot of this movie was stuff that really happened in George Lucas's life, which I think that kind of adds to um, it adds to the feel of the film, to the atmosphere, because it's it's realistic in its presentation because a lot of it really happened. Like, for example, there was the line where the cop says to John, he goes, I know that was you last night, John. We didn't actually catch you, but we will. Apparently a cop really said that to George Lucas and he went to court and they, for whatever it was that he did, and they couldn't prove it because no one saw him there. So he, he skated. <laughs> 
Yeah, it kind of adds to the whole atmosphere of the movie, knowing that it's real. And and another thing that adds to the atmosphere and you know the the whole uh, immersiveness, I guess, the immersive feel of of the movie or of movies. It it's like when you know it's something that has happened because the the director or the the, the creator has has said so. It it kind of makes it feel real. But when it's like you know watching horror movies and it's like based on a true story, that kind of downplays the entire movie. I I, I personally feel that one right i agree i agree and now another layer to this film is the music uh the music was very important to this picture and i guess they what they ended up doing was they had um they paid like something like ninety thousand dollars to um the record companies to license these songs the only one they couldn't get were any was anything by elvis presley but because they spent that much they they couldn't actually get someone to write a score for the film so lucas decided to you know he used the absence of music and sound effects to create drama in between when the songs played and the songs themselves are um they're they're diagenic which means that the characters in the movie uh, i'm sorry diegetic which means that the characters in the movies could hear them as well and it was the the music became an integral part of the action had you heard any of these songs that were in the movie before i can't remember all the songs you know but but I'm guessing I've heard a few of them. Okay, yeah, they they'd rock around the clock and sixteen candles and run away by Del I'll Shannon. Rock around the clock, I've heard that. Yep, Johnny Be Good, you know, smoke gets in your eyes. There's so many good ones. Does this, you know, as a young person yourself, did you feel or do you feel compelled to maybe seek out the soundtrack to this movie? I, I suppose I like older music, you know, um, an example would be, you know, I like Johnny Cash, for example. Right. So I, I suppose some of the songs could, could be something that I would listen to in my like everyday life. You know, I, I, I play video games, which, you know, wow, uh, that's a shocker being a 19 <laughs> year old in 2021. Right. Right. But, but no, you know, I play video games and, and sometimes uh, when you just want to relax or for example when i read i listen to old timey music because it makes me feel very relaxed so you know maybe maybe it, it could be it could be yeah you should check it out i've been listening to it a lot lately just recently I, I did a show about the show happy days that we talked about earlier and it has basically the same soundtrack as this and i highly recommend it you know if you have spotify or something check out the uh, soundtrack to american graffiti it's well worth it there's a lot of great songs in there and you know you can skip through the ones that probably don't grab you i, I do that myself but there's just so many good good songs that came out of the 50s and 60s oh uh, yeah um going on the note of me playing video games i play um you, uh, I don't know if, if you know any video games, but I play a game, a game series called Fallout, and they have a lot of you know old timey music because it's kind of like in the the setting of the the fifties. Oh, okay, yeah, my my son plays that. He told me about that. Yeah, yeah, and there's good songs like uh, what what's it called, uh, the Gambler. Yep. And uh, there's a Johnny Guitar, and uh, there's a, a Big Iron, for example. You know, it's kind of like country esque music, some of it, and it's it's pretty. Pretty good. I, I love the soundtrack in 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 the games. So oh, that's cool. You know, it's it's you know the the the, the games with um, the you know fifties settings is it's pretty good. It's another part of why I like movies like The Godfather. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, Grand Theft Auto I've played in the past, and that has a cool soundtrack, especially like if you, the ones where you can change the radio station. I always put the classic rock channel on. Yeah, I played uh, GTA San Andreas when yep. I was uh, a kid, if I can say that, being as young as. <laughs> I am, but back when I was like actually like a kid, kid, I played uh, GTA San Andreas on my PlayStation Two, and you know that's where I first got introduced to like uh, very organically to to for example Ozzy Osbourne. 
Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, back in my day, we played Pac-Man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's very, very dad-esque. <laughs> no, but, but my family loves, like, the older uh, rock, I suppose. My mom likes uh, Black Sabbath and Ozzy Osbourne and uh, Alice Cooper. Oh, yeah. yeah I, could, I could go on. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Now, your parents might like this soundtrack, too, so you should play it for them sometime. Yeah, I probably will. Uh, my my dad uh, told me because I showed him the list of movies you sent because you know my dad is an older man, uh, bordering on sixty. Oh wow. He um he probably knows most of them. I would assume so since you know when when American Graffiti came out, he was like twelve years old. So right, right. So um, let's talk just a very briefly about the end of the film here, where I, I had mentioned at the end of the synopsis that the film ends with the title cards, and we get the outcomes of the four central boys. You know, John dies two years later in a, uh, in a car accident that's not his fault. Terry goes uh, MIA in Vietnam, is pre- presumed dead. Steve skips college and stays in town to become an insurance salesman. And Kurt is a writer uh, in Canada. So it also implies that he's a draft dodger, because the draft was around at that time. And um, it's really kind of sad, you know, the two deaths, one squashed ambition and one forced to become an expatriate, uh, which is, oddly enough, that's the happiest of the four endings. But so the ending is a little yeah. bit of a bummer considering the fact that the picture's so emotionally upbeat. But it does maintain, you know, I, I would say it maintains an accuracy of cultural reality where it, you know, it spends its runtime I'm sorry. The movie itself, the uh, amount throughout the runtime of the picture, it just maintains a, a sense of cultural accuracy. I thought, and like the, the world these guys are in, it's they're melting like Wolfman Jack's popsicles. You know, I thought that was a, a yeah. great metaphor that he with the popsicle scene. <laughs> yeah, he, he says he has a whole uh, a whole fridge full of them because right. you know there's a lot of problems. And, you know, that just sort of represents the whole of what these guys are going through is that their their world is melting away and it's going to change into a different form. You know, the, the popsicles are going to become liquid. Yeah. So, Lucas, uh, any final thoughts on the film? Anything else you'd like to talk about? Um, I, I, I found it kind of funny that um, John, you know, has this whole tough guy persona. And, and then when, um, when the girls uh, that they, you know, they stop at the red light, they throw that... Uh, a water balloon yeah. at uh, <laughs> at John and hits Carol and then he it like it kind of melts away he's like he he becomes like a kid again and and he he like they she's like oh we'll hop out and you know like fucking uh, let's yeah. go flatten their tires and right. <laughs> and with the whole uh, shaving cream uh, what, uh, the shaving cream yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I found I kind of found it as like another layer to him that you know. As you always see in movies, there's this tough guy and like the whole the squad of, of, of characters. And, and then the tough guy always shows, you know, his softer side. I, I found that scene in particular very interesting because, you know, he's with a kid and, and all of a sudden, you know, he's like, OK, I can I can, you know, drop the facade and just have fun. That's right. That's I didn't even think of that. True, too. And it just sort of shows that he's still hanging on to his childhood. You know, all the other guys are pursuing girls with the hopes of having sex and he's just hanging out with this 12 year old. And then the, the most fun he has is like you said, tr- trashing those people's car by deflating the tires and putting shaving cream all over the windows. Yeah, exactly. And I think it kind of shows again, the whole thing that like, you know, he doesn't actually change very much throughout the movie. We get a lot of insight into his character, but he doesn't actually change. And all the other guys are moving on with their lives and he's still just kind of, you know, 
being a teenager. Right. Exactly. Of course, it's 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 actually kind of sad, but it's it's a good like um, a good layer to the movie, I guess. That you know, it's not everybody who who changes. Right. Right. He's just kind of stuck the way he is. So, all right, Lucas, uh, your final thoughts on the movie, and would you recommend this to someone your age? I think it's a I think it's a great movie. Honestly, bottom of my heart, it's it's I I would probably rewatch it. Actually, it's a really really good movie, and. Um, it, Almost anything that George Lucas uh, makes is is really good, and anything with Harrison Ford, really. But but yeah, I would I would definitely recommend uh, watching it to anyone of any age, really. It's a it's a great movie. Uh, there's a lot of layers, and you can even if you don't want to analyze it as as much as as we have done and 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 like discussed it, you could just watch it and take it for what it is, a movie. Exactly, exactly. You know, I agree. I really love this movie, and I'm I'm so glad we actually watched it again, or we watched watched it. But I I'd seen it like I said as a kid, but I'm just so glad to have seen it again and really get way more out of it than I would have as a little kid. Besides, I love retro stuff. Uh, you know, stuff about the 50s and 60s. I, I think, you know, this movie is, it's less of a narrative and it's more like something that just sort of washes over you and you just soak in the nostalgia. You know, when you're watching this film, it's a slice of life. There's no real clear plot. There's no character with a goal and an antagonist that, you know, he has to defeat the antagonist to reach the goal. It's just a slice of life of these characters' lives. And it, it's really fascinating and entertaining to watch, especially when you consider that uh, some of these situations really happened to George Lucas and, or people he knew in real life. You know, in the film... I, I saw some criticism in places here and there that it was too nostalgic, but that doesn't bother me at all. I really, really enjoyed this film, and I highly recommend, as you did, that listeners go out and see this movie if they haven't, and if you have, show it to a younger person as well. I, I recommend also checking out the soundtrack because you're going to hear some really great classic rock songs that you know you just don't hear on the radio anymore. Well, Lucas, thank you so much for joining the show and co-hosting with me today. And I know you had mentioned the, the list that we talked about of films. And I look forward to working our way down that list uh, in upcoming episodes. Definitely. They, it seems as a very great list of movies. I, uh, I haven't watched uh, any of them other than Rebel Without a Cause. So I'm, uh, I'm hoping we'll discuss that one. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, maybe we will do that on our next show. But I'm not going to say right now. We'll keep it a surprise for the audience for now. So thanks for joining us today, and um, I'll, like I said, I'll talk to you in a future episode. Thanks for having me, and we will. Well, that's all the time we have for Then Is Now podcast today. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about the film American Graffiti, and we hope you rediscover this movie and share it with others, particularly young people. You can send your feedback to thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join in the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group. Then Is Now podcast is also a proud member of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so be sure to check out the other great shows there at thedorkening.com. You can also visit our website at havenpodcasts.com, where you'll find our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and spaghetti western movies. And then as now is on YouTube, so visit youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 to get the latest videos as well as other fun videos. Please subscribe to our YouTube page and also share the video versions of our podcast with your friends and get them to subscribe to our YouTube page as well. Don't forget to go wherever you download your podcast from and leave us 
us a great review if you enjoyed this show so that more listeners can find us. We are, of course, on all the podcasting apps, especially the big three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. So once again, if you could leave us a great review, that would really be helpful. Okay, well, that's all the time we have today for American Graffiti. Class dismissed.